In today's bonus episode of the Embracing Autism podcast, we will bring you yet another clip from our video series spinoff, Embracing Autism IRL. You can find this series by going to youtube.com and searching for the key phrase Embracing Autism IRL. You can also find it on our Facebook page at Autism Wish. Welcome to Embracing Autism, a podcast for parents of autistic children seeking advice and support while spreading awareness and acceptance of autism spectrum disorder. I'm Leah. And I'm Matt. And each week we will discuss our journey with autism and talk about how to embrace your child's individuality while providing guidance, tips, resources, and sharing our personal stories. This is Embracing Embracing Autism. Autism. In today's episode, we are discussing ABA therapy or applied behavioral analysis. As you all may know, applied behavioral analysis is a hotly debated form of therapy among the autistic community, with some advocating for it and others adamantly opposed to what they refer to as a form of abuse. In today's episode, we will meet with Kate Salade, an autist and ABA practitioner herself, as well as the owner of Behavioral Foundation Centers, to discuss her unique perspective on this controversial topic. Without further ado, here is our interview with Kate Salade. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Embracing Autism IRL in Real Life. Today, we have with us Kate Salade, and she is an autist, an autism mom and advocate, and a BCBA in Volusia County, Florida. She has three children with different special needs and owns two companies providing ABA therapy and specialized education services. Kate completed her master's degree in ABA at the Florida Institute of Technology and achieved a board certification in 2011. She's also completed her comprehensive exams towards a PhD in human behavior. And Kate provides trainings at local schools and local law enforcement to spread awareness and acceptance in order to improve lives across the community. Hi, Kate. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good. How are you? I am well. If you could just start off by just letting us know a little bit about yourself. Sure. Like you said, I am an autist myself. I'm a clinically diagnosed level one autist, and I am a mom of three. Um, My oldest son is 14, and he is also an autist. Um, And then I have a seven-year-old, and I have a two-year-old who is actually about to go get tested (laughs) for autism as well. Uh, as you said, I'm also a behavior analyst, and I do own two companies in the area. So we provide both ABA therapy, and then we have a, a special needs school that covers both children with developmental disabilities, as well as children with mental health concerns, or just children that don't work out well in the public school system. Um, so I'm very busy <laughs> in this community um, on quite a few fronts. Wow. So if I was to ask you how you're involved, it seems like pretty much in every shape and form, like it's in your family, but it's also in your business life and education. Seems like you're heavily involved in the autism community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, My eldest son got diagnosed at seven. He was actually diagnosed before me, but I have been working as a behavior analyst since Well, I got certified in 2011, but I've been working in this industry since 2008. So I actually started in the industry when he was only six months old before either of us had a diagnosis. But yeah, it's just kind of become ingrained into everything. I joined the advocacy movement um, back in 2019 when the state was trying to make some changes to disability access to care. So it's, it's kind of everywhere. It's my day job. It's my hobby. It's my <laughs> it's my after hours work. It's kind of become a part of all the aspects of my life. 
I also just realized the way that you're phrasing that, it made it sound like you received your diagnosis later in adulthood. Is is that true? And how, how was that receiving a late diagnosis? Absolutely. Actually, I only got um, officially diagnosed a couple of years ago. That is pretty common for especially females. Late diagnoses are very common. But then in general, masking, I'm sure you know a lot about masking. You've heard a lot about masking. Females tend to be much better at masking. So there's a lot of things that growing up were weird about me. Um, And my parents would just kind of be like, hey, you're weird, act more normal. And I'd be like, oh, right, other (laughs) people don't do that. Let me act normal. And as I got older, there's things that have stuck with me, experiences that I've realized are very different than other people's experiences. And so I had gone to seek counseling for just stress. My youngest son was having brain surgery. And his surgery got put off and the doctor kind of said, you know, since you're already here, do you think I could test you? And uh, at first I was a little bit apprehensive. I was like, why? What would it matter at this point in my life? And um, (laughs) she said, you know, she said it might inform my care differently. I might deal with you differently and, and talk to you differently and have different methods of therapy if I knew that you were autistic versus just you know, you have some social nuances. So we went through it. It was actually a five hour process, 400 questions on different questionnaires, and then multiple hours of interviewing and going back over, you know, did this really occur back when you were a child? Did you have these same rigidities? Did you have these same nuances, these same kinds of behaviors um, before she finally came up with her diagnosis? Wow. So it was kind of like, luck. (laughs) So my question for you is you finding out late that you were diagnosed with autism and the fact that you have children on the spectrum, what attracted you to ABA? I'm sure you're well aware there's a lot of controversy surrounding ABA therapy. It is definitely something that splits the community. Matt and myself, we're kind of fence sitters. Um, We're very much so like, it really depends on who the ABA therapist is and what they're practicing. So given the fact that there is so much controversy around it, I'm interested to know, like, as an autistic adult, what drew you to that? Yeah, sure. I was actually doing my undergraduate degree in psychology originally at the University of Central Florida. And honestly, I'd go into every single class and have these professors to you know telling me all about the theories of psychology and all of these famous old psychologists and all of that and it, it just got stuck in my head what if people don't tell you the truth it just kept sticking with me and i had this um, professor of abnormal psych um, who obviously had some intricacies of his own that he would engage in in class and i i did i asked him i raised my hand and i was like okay but what if they lie to you? And he said, what do you mean? What, why would anybody lie to their psychologist? And I said, well, why wouldn't they? Like if somebody thought that being diagnosed as a schizophrenic or being diagnosed as OCD or being diagnosed autistic was going to be stigmatizing or have negative consequences, why wouldn't they lie? And then alternatively, because I had also taken forensic psych and such, what prevents somebody from lying and saying that is what they're doing when they are not actually having some sort of a mental health challenge. So, you know, I commit murder and then I go in and I say, well, actually I'm an undiagnosed schizophrenic and I know enough about schizophrenia to play pretend. How do you stop that? 
And the best answer that they could give me is, well, you're just good enough to see it. And I, well, that just didn't make sense hmm. to me. It didn't make sense to me that there wasn't good enough actors to get through the system. And so I had really become disillusioned with psychology because it felt like a bunch of people who thought that they knew what they were doing. And then after my son was born, I needed a job. I raised horses. I grew up on a farm um, and I had gotten this interview at a, a group home, um, an institution type facility. And they said, well, we really want somebody to start this equine therapy program here. And I said, I know horses. <laughs> so they hired me on the spot for this. I had never worked with anybody with disabilities or anything. And I went in there and I was like, okay, what are we doing? And where do we go from here? You know, I don't want to just be direct care for the rest of my life. Yes, this is awesome. I'm helping these people. I was, um, you know, teaching these adult males with various disabilities to take care of themselves, to take care of the farm animals. We were doing agriculture. I was teaching them job skills, just all of these things that was really enriching their lives. But I said, there's got to be something more than being the person standing here doing it day to day. And so somebody there actually got me into touch with Jose Martinez Diaz over at uh, FIT. And he called me and he said, this is what it is. This is what you need to do. You need to come see this because it takes psychology and it turns it scientific. And so once I got into the program, it, wow. it made so much sense. I don't have to, I don't have to hear words. I don't rely on people speaking words to me to be able to get the information that I need. I get the information that I need from observations, and then I use that data to adjust what I'm doing to make the world more appropriate for them so that they can learn by me changing the world. So it's been, for me, I mean, an amazing experience. And I think, honestly, as an uh, autist myself, it just makes more sense to me because I am so logical, it lays it out in a very logical way. Wow, absolutely. That makes sense. So given this context, how would you then define ABA to a parent who's just now learning about it? Sure, absolutely. I think that ABA is the science of manipulating the world to make it more favorable for other people to learn. That's really what we're doing. We're manipulating environments, manipulating our reactions, you know, manipulating supports so that other people can learn faster, can learn really effectively. They can just blossom. <laughs> and what do you think is something that's commonly misunderstood about ABA therapy? I think I hear a lot of it creates robots or, you know, it's it stresses kids out. I think that those things are based on either not really ABA, like you said, based on either people that don't do their job really well, or they're based on really narrow views of ABA. Um, if you look at other professions 50 years ago, psychology was doing lobotomies, dentistry was gassing people and ripping out teeth without anesthesia, right? Horrible things happened 50 years ago in every single industry. That's not how it is anymore. Um, on a day-to-day -day basis at my company, the kids come out here and they play. And playing is the number one way that kids learn. So our job is not to change that child. Our job is to change the world, to make the world more effective for that child, to set up the opportunities for that child to communicate and things like that. So I think people think like, oh, you're going to come in and change my kid. No, I'm not, actually. I'm here to change the world to make it more accessible to your child. 
for me, um, I, I mentioned earlier, like we were the ones that were kind of like fence sitting when it comes to ABA. We've looked a lot into it. And I, I think that, you know, there's the pros, there's the cons, and it all really depends on who is providing the ABA and whether or not you can trust that person with your child. So my question to you is, how do you ensure that trust with the parent? How do you prove to your clientele that, you know, your ABA therapy is one that they can trust? Yeah, um, I think number one, obviously, do your research. And number two is be involved, asking questions about what do you do? What do you do if a child refuses to move, but they're not being dangerous? The answer at my facility is we never put our hands on a child if they're not in some sort of danger. So we don't do any sort of forced transitions or things like that. We don't do escape extinction, which is one of the procedures that a lot of parents don't like where a child is kept in the activity until the activity is done. Even if the child is actively telling you like, I don't want to be doing this by having a tantrum or something like that. We don't use rigid policies and procedures here. It is play-based therapy and they have the right to consent and assent. I think every parent should be asking their ABA providers, do you teach self-advocacy? Do you teach consent? Do you teach assent? What if they say no? What do you do? The answer here is all of my employees are trained that if a child ever says no, we stop. We stop whatever it is that we're doing immediately and teach that child that we're going to respond every single time they tell us no. So um, it's a lot a lot of asking questions. All of my employees are also trained in um, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy Act, which is kind of a mindful behaviorism concept, making sure that we are um, teaching for the whole self. We teach the kids to express, I'm hurting. I'm sad, I'm mad, I'm frustrated, because those things are really essential to the child being fulfilled, the child being able to communicate. It's not about, again, making the child work in our world. It's about making our world work for the child. Yeah, I love that. Not to go completely 180 here, but back <laughs> onto your experience with being an autistic adult. <laughs> sure. <laughs> because that was fascinating. That I got a lot of information there. I'm really happy to hear about how you guys do your ABA therapy. I know like for us, that stuff is really important, like making sure that there is no coercion and things like that, which tends to be like the main concern. But I'm really curious to know, as an autistic adult, what has been some of the biggest challenges that you face? Uh, I have a lot of rigidities. I have a lot of just things that I want to be away, and then they just don't happen that way. I'd say that's probably been the number one through my life experience. Easy example of this um, that I had told my doctor, and she was like, I didn't realize it was that rigid. <laughs> um, I eat the exact same breakfast every single day, like down to I can tell you how many spoonfuls of oatmeal it takes and how many ways that I cut my meat. And if something is off, that flavor wasn't available, or I ran out of that type of meat or something, most of the time, I will simply not eat at all. That is my coping mechanism for it. But that same kind of rigidity will run throughout my life. Like I'll want to have the same type of cup or I want to have my seat in the right position or the same seat or things like that. I obviously cope really well with it, um, but it's always in the back of my mind. So I'll enter environments and they won't be right. And I will kind of have to take a pause and be like, this is not how I prefer this, but OK, we're going to make this work. 
before I walk into that situation. So given that experience that you've had and the experience from just seeing how your own children navigate life and navigate the world around them, what would be your biggest tip for making the world a better place for the autistic and neurodiverse? Ask questions. If somebody is able, yeah, if somebody is able to communicate with you, I think the knowledge that can be shared between the two groups is just amazing. It opens up so many sectors. Since I have been diagnosed, this is actually something I'm very open with it. I'm very open with my staff about it. And so we've had a lot of opportunities where the staff have been like, Kate, I know you said you're autistic and you don't like lights, for example. This is my non-preferred light. I typically work with the lights turned off in my office, but they know I don't like lights. So they've asked me, what is it? Like, what does it feel like? What is that experience like from you? Because I'd like to be informed about that when I'm dealing with this with the kids. Like, I'd like to be sensitive to that when I'm dealing with the kids. If we can both agree on that, to me, there's no difference in making an accommodation or having some compassion for somebody that doesn't like lights than there is asking the waiter to not put pepper on your food. It's simply a, a difference in me that makes my life better if we have that light turned off, right? And if it doesn't impact you, then let's do it. Again, it's about making the world more accessible for everyone. And do you mind sharing what your experience with the lights on feels like? Oh, sure. Um, I can feel lights physically. <laughs> so like right now, this light, especially because it's really dark everywhere else, I didn't bother to turn the lights on in the rest of the building. So everything around us is black, except for this light. Um, it feels like a physical pressure and it feels hot. So like it's putting pressure on my forehead, on the side of my face, on the side of my neck. I want to itch it, but I'm not itching it because it's going to turn me red on the video. Um, and then it feels hot. So I keep looking at myself in the video thinking, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn red. I'm going to turn red because it feels hot. So things like that can be so different and so impacting because you can hear all the thoughts then that are going through my head as I'm experiencing this anomaly of what the sensory input from this light occurs to me is. I think those things are some of the biggest barriers to autists and the normal world because if people don't learn to be compassionate to, oh, maybe there's something going on behind the scenes, then you're not considering that I'm talking myself through this whole coping mechanism for sitting here with the lights on. Yeah, that's something that neurotypical people would never even think to consider because they're just sitting there under lights doing their usual thing and they don't think <laughs> twice that the lights are on. Right. So my other question is, as an autistic adult exploring and navigating the world, what tips or guidance would you give to other autistic adults, perhaps even those that follow the same path where they are getting a late diagnosis? Yeah, um, I think for those that it's available to, personally, one of the things I, I probably did the best in my life is I went and studied neurotypicals. <laughs> Just like I learned everything that I I. I you know, have learned about autists, but I also have the um, direct experience for autists. I took lots and lots of classes on neurotypicals, even if I don't understand their thought processes. I think that it has been just very, very valuable to me to understand the process that they go through for their thought processes or what to expect from them. Like, what is typical here? I do a lot of statistical analysis, like logistics, Thinking about you and your background, I would expect that you're probably going to have this, this, or this reaction. And that really helps me, honestly, through things. But 
integration, same thing, either learning about neurotypes or integrating with with neurotypes and mixtures of different neurotypes. It's just like learning about different personality types or learning about different cultures. I don't think that you would ever be comfortable really feeling like you know Latinos without going and spending a bunch of time with Latinos, right? And then Puerto Rican Latinos versus Mexican Latinos versus Spaniard Latinos are all going to be extremely different cultures. Autism is kind of like a culture and there's even different autism cultures, right? Because there's the high functioning or like the level one culture. And then it gets different as you go to the more severe. There's a lot of cultural trauma that goes to that end. You have to be aware on all ends if you want to seriously integrate it into your lifestyle. Yes, I can say as a Puerto Rican Latina, I agree. <laughs> that was a very specific example. I was like, well, does she know? <laughs> no, but um, I'm married to a so Puerto Rican Latino. <laughs> Oh, that's so you get it then. You get the spice. Yes. <laughs> um, so, one of my other questions is our podcast, we call it Embracing Autism. And we, we chose that phrase very specifically because we feel like um, there's like the terms of awareness and acceptance. And we felt like taking it kind of up a notch and, and bring it to the level of embracing autism. So, I just wanted to know from your perspective and your opinion, what does the concept of embracing autism mean to you? you. Absolutely. I think that it means integrating autism acceptance, autism awareness, autism embracement, autism as a common theme in your life in a way that just makes it normal. Like people always say they, they want to be normal, but this is normal. It's normal for a very large portion of the population. So the difference between where we are now and embracing it, making it become normal is people have to let go of it being not normal. As soon as we all assume that it's normal and this is everyday life and it's just, oh yeah, that kid's the autistic one. My teenage son is the most ridiculously adorable autist ever. He literally will be having a sensory episode and will run down the hallway and go, autism! <laughs> and he is a, uh, a ninth grade student at the local high school, takes college classes and his friends know he's open about it they're open about it and they all smile and they laugh. He knows it's silly. They know it's silly. That's embracing. There is a whole group of them that this is just a silly, fun thing that he does. <laughs> and nobody thinks twice about it because that's normal to them. Yeah. So like not essentially treating people differently for the fact that they are autistic, but rather just embracing them as one of your own and just like not even thinking twice about it, essentially. That yeah. makes sense to me. If you could be remembered for one thing, what would that thing be? You know, what's funny about that question is I don't actually care if I'm remembered. What I would like to know happens is that when I left, I left something better behind doesn't matter to me if it's attached to my name. Mm. Um, I know that in my company right now, uh, we're just leaving an absolute wake of children that are learning how to communicate, learning how to express themselves, learning how to self-advocate. Um, you know, when we added the education side of things, these kids are having so much fun. They are doing field trips. I have met with so many parents that have taken me aside and been like, I didn't even know this was possible. I couldn't have imagined to go out and do this with my child. And here we are on a field trip. We look like any other school. This is normal. 
Like this is the normal that I've always been looking for. And I have gotten the opportunity to say, yeah, but we didn't change your kid. Like your kid is the same as your kid has always been. One of our kids, I've actually had the pleasure of knowing since the day that she came home from the hospital because I worked with one of her siblings before her. She is the same person that she has always been. She's a beautiful soul. And we've just changed the world so that the world is accommodating for them. That's it. It just makes the world accessible. And they're able to do these fantastic things. So if I leave that behind, that's fantastic. I don't care if anybody remembers I'm attached to it. Well, I'm pretty sure the legacy that you leave behind will definitely have your name involved, given that specific program that you're doing with education. That's amazing. I haven't seen anything like that. That'd be awesome if there was something like that around here, but there there really is not enough of that. Yeah, it's Um, actually named after my son. (laughs) Oh, okay. That makes more sense now. Okay. I love that. So what is the most important lesson that you feel that you have learned as an autistic adult who has also become an ABA practitioner? I'm sure that that is, to many people, very a very confusing concept. So I'm just curious to know your take on that. Oh, the most important lesson. I think um, that the world's got to change. Now, that's probably sums it up, that the world has got to change in so many ways, right? Uh, all of the other cultural movements and everything that we're going through right now, they're all about the world changing. And autism is just another one of those movements. We all need to become more compassionate. We all need to find the new and the better way. There's no reason to stay in these kind of archaic dinosaur styles of discipline or communication or um, hierarchies, right? If we can all just accept some compassion and change the world, that's always the goal of we give the our children a better world than what we grew up in. Live that. Live that on a daily basis and things will change and they will become better and you will give your children better than what you came up in. Yes, I totally believe in that. Like that saying of be the change you want to see. It seems old and cheesy, but I honestly think it's still very relevant. I think not enough people are really living by that principle. So if more of us did that, I think we could actually see real change. Is there anything else that you would like to share that perhaps I have not given you the opportunity to share yet? I don't know. I guess not. (laughs) Probably not on my end. I'm always here and open (laughs) for questions. It's fine if there isn't. Yeah, I'm always open for questions and all of that. Um, I guess maybe the the last thought that I would leave everybody with is don't set the ceiling for your child, set the floor. Wow, I love that. That's a great quote. <laughs> I might have to use that somewhere. <laughs> for sure. So let me know, where can our listeners find you online? Sure. So we have two company websites. The ABA side is behavioralfoundation.org. And the school side of it is exceptionalinstitute.org. Those will give you a good view of all of the different services that we offer there, as well as the trainings that we do at near free or extremely discounted rates for the communities and things like that. Excellent. So everybody, you saw that. Um, We want you to go ahead and give her Facebook pages a like and a follow. um, Show some support for Kate. And Kate, thank you so much for taking the time to sit with us and have this conversation. I think it was really insightful getting your very unique perspective on this. And I know I've learned some stuff about ABA and what it's like to be an autistic adult. And I'm sure our audience has as well. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. 
Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This has been the audio companion to the Embracing Autism IRL video spinoff. If you'd like to find the video that accompanies this audio, please go on YouTube and search the key phrase Embracing Autism IRL. There you will find this video and others from the IRL spinoff series. And don't forget to subscribe to the page to get updates when new videos are uploaded. We also encourage our listeners to send us your questions or comments at podcast.autismwish.org or by navigating to the podcast section of our website. In the meantime, don't forget to visit our website at www.autismwish.org for more parent resources to include a monthly parent support group, free principles such as visual schedules, weekly planners, and other potty training visual guides as well. Tune in next week as we premiere the season five trailer for the Embracing Autism podcast. This is Embracing Autism.